This episode of According to Flint is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, who is proud to bring the Western lifestyle and outdoor enthusiasts together for conservation projects, enhancing elk habitat, and ensuring the future of America's hunting heritage. Visit rmef.org for more information. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode of According to Flint. Thanks once again to our friends at Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and welcome to another episode of According to Flint and honored to have this week's guest, Major Mark Nooch. The name may not sound familiar, but the story probably does. He is one of the authors of a new book, Swords of Lightning, Green Beret Horse Soldiers and America's Response to 9-11. If you've seen or heard of the movie 12 Strong, those are the guys we are speaking of and Mark Nooch played by actor Chris Hemsworth. He's got an amazing story, and I know on these podcasts, we have anywhere from athletes to rodeo cowboys, bull riders, world champions, country music singers, that a lot of people consider heroes to them. But our friend Mark Nooch is a true hero and gives a lot of credit to the people that he worked with in their exploits as special forces going into Afghanistan the first ones in after 9-11. It's an intriguing story, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another episode of According to Flint, but first, this from our friends at Pendleton Whiskey. This, along with every episode of According to Flint, brought to you by Pendleton Whiskey. For more than a century, the Pendleton Roundup has defined what it means to be a cowboy. It also gave life to something equally renowned, a whiskey that captures that unique spirit in every bottle. A whiskey made with the finest northern grains and cut with Mount Hood glacier water. A whiskey that celebrates the cowboy in all of us. That is Pendleton whiskey, and that's true Western tradition. Pendleton Distillers, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Please drink responsibly. Welcome to episode number 48, According to Flint, and as I've said, honored to have this gentleman on, a guy that, happy to say he is my friend, not a longtime friend, but we're good enough to, to use that title. It's Major Mark Nooch, we talked about it. The new book is Swords of Lightning, Green Beret, Horse Soldiers, and America's Response to 9-11. I have it right here, and Mark, honored you personalized my book. This is going on the shelf after I wear out the pages. Thank you for the book. I appreciate that. Good to see you. Well, thank you, Flint. Thanks for thanks for having me on again. Uh, it's it's been a short short couple of weeks. It seems like uh, since we were sitting together at the Fort Worth uh, NFR on your show. Yeah, it was that. That was a pleasant surprise. I our mutual friend Scott Grover, um, rodeo announcer, PBR announcer, reached out and told me about you and I thought too good to be true come to the show and you you brought Bob Pennington as well who's in on the book and all I remember thinking is we had our 15 minute tv segment or or whatever it was and when you left I said we need to talk longer it's been now that all of a sudden it's been a year and a half and uh, we need to talk longer so yeah it's time to talk so yeah we're having a great run uh uh our 
our bourbon brand, Horse Soldier Bourbon, has just been blowing up uh, over the last six years with that. And now Bob and I co-authored our book about our Special Forces team's historic unconventional warfare mission right after 9-11. We did that with the award-winning author, Jim DeFelice, who uh, authored American Sniper and about a dozen other bestsellers. And, you know, finally having the book out now. So we're doing a little book promotion uh, along with uh, tasting some award-winning double gold horse soldier bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, of course, everyone became familiar with the horse soldiers and the uh, the special forces group that, that led the way into Afghanistan with the movie 12 Strong. And so when this, to me, this book, we need the firsthand account because now the movie 12 Strong also based on a book, but it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Not necessarily the firsthand account of what went on, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, author Doug Stanton uh, wrote a book called The Horse Soldiers uh, a number of years ago. We were kind of busy when he was preparing that book. Uh, busy in terms of uh, my special forces team, the, the Operational Detachment Alpha 595, as we were known officially, part of the 5th Special Forces Group. You know, we had just come back from Afghanistan and we were already knew we were going to spearhead operations into Iraq. So we're focused on the next mission, the next deployment. And uh, we were asked to interview with Doug and, and uh, did that briefly. And he interviewed a number of other other folks. Uh, but that great, good book. Uh, but there is so much more to the story. And that's why we finally wanted to get out uh, our own book, Swords of Lightning. Um, you know, that book horse soldiers was made into the movie Hollywood portrayal 12 strong. And, uh, they capture the core aspects in the Hollywood version of our team splitting up. And again, so much to that story, uh, they really only portray, uh, about the first, uh, half of that incredible historic mission right after nine 11. Uh, they show how our team split up. They show how special forces works with local partners. Uh, but again, so much more to the story. We're, yeah. we're hopeful perhaps down the road, there'll be a, uh, uh, a mini series, you know, if from our perspective over a, a nearly three month long mission, you could do multiple, multiple episodes, uh, yeah. if you will. That's one thing that when, you know, there are Hollywood's Hollywood movies get made. And I hear people all the time say, well, I think people understand it's Hollywood and it's not completely true. Listen, I live in Montana and I deal with the show Yellowstone. People don't yeah. understand it's Hollywood, but, and I, th you know what I think when I, when I watch certain movies that I'm familiar with the backstory, I uh -huh. think, I think the time, the thing that gets lost in it is a, any sort of time frame. Because it's got to take place in two hours in a theater, and, and it feels like all of this happened right. in three days. Right. And, and that gets lost in there. Yeah. So our, our team uh, was one of the first inserted uh, to northern Afghanistan after the attacks of 9-11. And, uh, you know, in summary, we were 24 days on horseback in combat uh, with our Northern Alliance militia allies. Just an incredible story working with our CIA partners, our other 
special forces uh, and special operations elements uh, that were all supporting that mission of my 12 guys on the ground with a handful of CIA officers. And then you have the incredible challenge of working with our Northern Alliance partners, uh, uh, getting to understand them, you know, build collaborative relationships, partnerships. Can we trust each other? You know, and then uniting three different ethnic factions together. That's the real magic of what our special forces and CIA team did was we brought three different ethnic leaders together. And by doing that, you know, getting them to sit in the same room and recognize that they had more in common uh, with each other uh, and that they were stronger if they would unite together. We raised up a militia army of nearly 5,000 fighters. 3,000 of those were on horseback. It was just amazing to see 3,000 horses on a 21st century battlefield uh, and being, you know, the glue that's trying to keep this incredible force together and leverage, you know, uh, again, literally think of our own American history, frontier cavalry mm -hmm. that I had read about, you know, and now they're armed with 20th century weapons. And then our team brings in 21st century technology like night vision goggles and GPS and satellite capable radios to coordinate airstrikes and a resupply of lethal and non-lethal aid. And it was just, it was incredible uh, and an honor to be at the, at the center of that and lead an crazy and incredible team of Americans so, uh, in those challenges. Yeah. So obviously because of the familiarity with the culture of Af Afghanistan, we can talk more about that, which is completely different than what our Western culture is. You're familiar with the different factions and the resistance trying to defeat the Taliban there anyway. We're so the goal going in is let's gather them. Let's ally with them to try and do this. Were you as you had to be a little familiar, but did you realize that the horse culture was as big as it was in what they did? Was that, did you know going in that? Uh, we had just, you know, uh, literally a couple days warning. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, there was, there was uh, not a lot known as the plan was being made literally in flight. And, uh, um, you know, we're, being asked to, to study what could be done and the incredible sergeants on our special forces team, we started reading everything we could get, you know, as you're submitting questions up through the chain of command to our intelligence officers and sergeants there, there were no answers coming back. And so we're reading on your own. It's self-study. You're reading national geographic maps and uh, tourist maps and looking things over and, as we were trying to read anything we can, we missed uh, a critical article about General Dostum that was written, I think, in like 1998 or 99. Uh, I've since, you know, gotten a copy of it somewhere in archives, but it, it was a, an article done in depth about him using horse-mounted cavalry uh, fighting against the Taliban, and we kind of missed that. Uh, so it wasn't until that would have been in, handy. That would have been handy would have been, to know. Yeah. Would have been handy, but you know, uh, it wasn't until we, you know, we met with our CIA uh, counterparts right hours before they were to board a helicopter and fly in, and 
And that intelligence picture was, was very gray. You know, we joke about when I brief uh, military officers now today, we joke about our entire operations order that the military gave you at that time was literally two pages, <laughs> eight and a half by it was, it was just so open-ended. And, uh, you know, as we're studying about these groups, uh, the, the intelligence picture was, wasn't clear. And then we started to have a brief conversation with these CIA teammates and they're like, well, no, he's looking forward to meeting you. Uh, and do you want to talk with him briefly? Uh, you know, and, and that's when we were told they were told, uh, because they're about to get on that helicopter, be prepared to ride local local animals, you know? So we're thinking, okay, this is a temporary in nature kind of thing. It'll be a one-time move. We, it wasn't until we got on the ground and the reporting from that CIA team coming back and then they're prepping us that now you got to be prepared to ride horses. That is going to be the main mode of getting around. So, you know, we have some of the best team, you know, best equipment, some of the best trained special uh, operators in the world. And uh, but none of us were anticipating fully that we would ride horseback. I had joked about it with the guys, you know, because uh, it was it was a way to build rapport mm -hmm. for me. Uh, I'd been in half a dozen Muslim countries, you know, prior to 9-11. I'd been in Kuwait and rode horses with Kuwaiti sheikhs. And, uh, we, you know, they have a horse culture. Uh, I'd been to Jordan and rode horses there. Uh, uh, at the, the historic, uh, the, the his, Petra, the historic city, you know, they portray that in Indiana Jones, you know, when he's riding the horses through the narrow Canyon, and then you're exposed into this Valley and you, just incredible scene. I rode horses there. I rode horses in Uzbekistan, uh, prior to nine 11. So for me, it was a way to build rapport and relax, uh, uh, and, and get to know my counterparts a little more. So I joked with my teammates before we flew in that, yeah, you know, at some point we're going to play this, uh, traditional Afghan game called Buscacci, uh, where it's the goat grab game. Yeah. You know, again, yeah. most people would remember that they portray it in the film Rambo and some other movies, you know, and, uh, I did. Eventually, I, I got to play uh, Buscacci several times uh, on that trip and other subsequent trips back to Afghanistan. But their horse culture, we were able, you know, I, I grew up in a, a Flint Hills region of, of central Kansas. I grew up on a ranching family. We rodeoed, you know, through little britches and high school and, and uh, for two years at, at the college level for Kansas State University. And, you know, that horse culture that I grew up around, you know, here, who knew I was going to need that kind of background, uh, on this incredible mission right after nine 11. And it was, it was a way for us to bond, uh, as well. Our Afghan allies did not expect us to, to share the hardships of riding horses in the mountains. They didn't expect us to sleep out on the ground. You know, all of these things, you know, we did that went towards, building rapport every day, you know, sharing the, the austere field conditions, sleeping on the ground or the best holiday in six, you, you know, motel six, you could find, uh, in a cave or a building somewhere. And, uh, one meal a day, my teammates and I lost, uh, about 20, 25 pounds of body weight 
in the first 30 days, you're just burning so many calories. We, we were like the mail in the Pony Express. They ride stallions culturally there. Uh, they're 13 to 14 hands tall, typically. And, you know, we averaged 200 pounds of body weight, uh, plus another 50 pounds of lightweight gear. The, the average Afghan, even uh, the Uzbeks that were more uh, taller or bigger in stature, you know, 150 to 170 pounds, you know, and they don't have near the gear that we do. So you're wearing out these horses and it became horse roulette uh, each morning. Uh, you know, an Afghan is given up his horse for my teammates or I to ride for that move. And, uh, uh, you know, then you, you'd have that horse for a few hours and then you're being put on another horse. Mm. And, uh, what I've learned, whether you're at a team roping, you know, in across Kansas or Nebraska, or you're helping neighbors gather cattle or something, if you're new to the group, uh, in particular in Afghanistan, uh, they made great sport of giving us the rankest worst horses that nobody wanted to ride. Uh, and I wish I had a video camera. Uh, we, we started calling it the buck out show, uh, every morning. You know, you're in the mountains, we're up, we started around 8,000 feet in elevation and we're coming down generally as, as a movement, but it's a little frosty. You know, there may have been uh, a light snow overnight or, you know, the water in the streams frozen up a little bit. And so it's a little cold and you're rolling out of your sleeping bag and you're packing up and getting ready to, to go on the day. And, you know, you're cinching up on that horse and and getting on them and uh whether it was an afghan or an american you know these stallions would suddenly just come uncorked and go bucking out through the crowd and and uh afghans and americans got got bucked off hell i got bucked off uh you <laughs> well, know if you were if you were at a team roping somebody throw a hat under him or a bucket under him you know that's just oh, the yeah. rules that's yeah, that's the rule <laughs> get it get it going let's start it, this show you know but, in, uh, in in that process uh Coming from where you came from and your your guys that you went in with, culturally within the within your group, you had to be the most experienced, didn't you? As far as yeah, horse, so yeah, that had, that had to that had to put you. They had to look to you in all of that, right? Yeah, and uh, that very first ride, that very first morning, you know, they do a good job of portraying that scene in in Twelve Strong. You know, we're meeting with General Dostum and and he's laying out a map and he's explaining where the Taliban and the enemy are and just this fire hose of information that, that he's feeding us. And then I ask him, you know, to take us to his mountain headquarters and show us the Taliban. And and he just says yes. And he finishes up the meeting and he's like, let's let's go. You know, six of us. Uh, are going to ride with him and follow very quickly. So we're scrambling. I'm, I'm leaving a contingency plan with Bob and Paul, our team sergeant. The six of them are going to stay. And then the other six guys, you know, uh, we had trained to split our team into two six-man sections. So my half of the team is, is quickly reconfiguring gear and what do you keep and what do you take? And, and uh, you know, you're pulling – readjusting bags really quickly. We thought we would have some more time. And then, uh, general Dostum, uh, 
quickly mounted up again and, and rode off. And so through my training, I'm like, when we conduct our Robin Sage, our unconventional warfare course that all of our guys have been through, you know, that portrays these kind of challenges, you know, a hard lesson I learned is once we've linked up with them and we've established rapport, you've got to stay with them. And so here, my leader, that's my mission is riding off, takes off, takes <laughs> off. And the six of us are scrambling. I'm, I'm, so there I'm fighting that urgency of we've got to go and we got to go right now with, Hey, the safety of my teammates. And I had to step back uh, and be trail boss, you know, and, and help them get, get mounted up and our teammates help them get mounted and, and, uh, you know, then once you're on board, man, these horses are in constant movement pretty much, you know, so you're getting them to turn them in tight circles and just keep, keep the group together. You know, I had one of my other young, younger sergeants was from South Dakota. Uh, he had probably the next level of horseback riding experience and he was part of that initial six man team that moved. So the two of us could help coach the other guys and, you know, but he had, he had rodeoed and ridden horses a little bit. He's from uh, uh, Sioux uh, native heritage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that was eight years in his past, you know, uh, I'd been on a horse, you know, back home a, a few months or weeks before we deployed, you know, for him, it had been eight years, you know, Bob and the other guys, they joke about, they had quarter horse training. You know, when mom and dad took them uh, to a Walmart when they were a kid and threw some quarters <laughs> in a bucket <laughs> machine uh, right out, right out in front of the store, you know. Uh, so you're trying to figure a lot of things out, literally right there at the trot and the gallop, you know, things like how do you carry your rifle? You know, what gear do I leave on my back or on my body? Because if you wear those little, you know, uh, there's nothing little about them. We've dropped our main packs that were a hundred pound rucksacks going in, uh, for insertion. So we've dropped most of that, that gear, but you still had what we call a three day assault pack that's on your back. Well, now you're really top heavy. You're riding the traditional Afghan saddles. Their stirrups are not adjustable. So initially we're very, uh, again, the Western way of thinking of somebody just loaned me their horse and their saddle right? What's the first thing you do when you borrow a horse at one of these rodeos or roping competitions? I'm going to adjust, adjust the, stirrups, the stirrups, right? Yeah. yeah. So the stirrups are not adjustable. They're on, it's a, it's a wooden saddle with a saddle horn and a deep cannel on the back. That's uh, almost uncomfortable holding, holding you in, but it's just covered with a uh, carpet. And then it's a fixed rope running down from the frame of that wooden saddle to a heavy bronze stirrup or a brass stirrup. And so they were too short and for us, right? Average height, six foot, your knees are up too high, too uncomfortably. And, uh, so these are all things we're having to deal with your, 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 your hiking boots with the lugs may not fit so well within the, the brass stirrup. So there's a lot of safety things right away, you know, where you're being too top heavy and you're trying to coach them to stay in the middle of it. And let's just, let's walk, let's just walk now. Well, maybe, okay. Can we trot? 
you know, but that's it. It's just a trot with that gear on and everything. And again, trying to balance catching up with the leadership and the general versus the safety of my guys. And, and, uh, you know, we, we just had to, had to slow down and, and figure it out, you know, with the gear that you're carrying, um, what you could leave behind. Can I trust the 10 Afghans? He just left us as security because we have language barriers, you know, and they're anxious to catch up, you know, and they're encouraging us to, to hustle up. Uh, and so it just, you know, the guys, my teammates did an incredible job learning how to ride horseback in combat, uh, for the first time, that first move, we didn't know how far it was going to be. It turned out to be four or five hours. You know, General Dosum had warned us there was enemy in the area, you know, or that some people would not be happy that the Americans were there. So we're, you know, in the midst of all that, how do I quickly ensure my team's, you know, our tactics, you know, that we spread out, that we knew there were mines. And so you're trying to follow the horse in front of you literally because that's the trail you know that's safe uh or you hope it's safe um you know and and having to cross some streams and just be prepared to fight to quickly dismount the horses and uh uh, have to fight potentially so all these things are going through my head and uh discussing it with our team as you know the six of us as we're moving and uh it's and I'm not making light of it, but in a sense, you're you're trying to you have guys that are trying not to die on a horse, and in the meantime, yes. you're not trying not to die. You, I mean, right. all of this. Yes. Um, hey, I want to backtrack a, a little bit because I'm I'm aware of it, but uh, you know the book. Your the beginning of your book says it in a good way. When we just you and I just now and the movie started talking about the twelve of you went in. And I know a lot of people initially when I had heard the story, like, why the hell would we just send 12 guys, you know? Well, you can't, after 9-11, you can't just conventionally invade an entire country. It, it was an it was such a unique situation. Yeah, We knew bin Laden was behind it, but you knew there were people that wanted to defeat the Taliban. And that's really the definition of special forces is to take on things like you did uh, in a very unconventional way. I yes, I know that's yeah. a minor. I just wanted to backtrack on that. That's why you guys went in. That's the definition of what special forces do, right? Yeah, is to work. We conduct all these missions and special forces by, with, or through a local partner. You know, uh, in the case of this unconventional warfare mission, we are we had uh, to support General Dostum, but we had incredible autonomy and authority. I could go anywhere in the country I needed to. You know, the mission was to uh, kill or capture Taliban and Al-Qaeda, literally wherever we found them, uh, uh, and to work towards toppling the Taliban regime uh, through these resistance groups. And uh, it, it's just incredible, incredible mission. Uh, we, we go into more of that detail in this book, mm-hmm. uh, Swords of Lightning, that's, that's come out now, uh, to get into some of those situations a little more that uh, yeah. uh, maybe are kind of glossed over in, in the movie or just in the time frame we have aren't really discussed. I get asked all the time about the horses. 
you know, um, I ended up uh, riding a buckskin stallion. Uh, it was about 15 hands. We finally got some new, you know, some bigger horses. Mm-hmm. We tried to buy horses so that they would be dedicated to our group. Um, the very first uh, night that report went out that, uh, that we were on the ground and we had just conducted a move and I need uh, 20 sets perhaps of uh, tack. And I, uh, funny little thing, I, I wrote that out of, hey, I want uh, Australian saddles. And I explained why with the adjustable stirrups and their lighter weight, you know, versus the team rope and saddle, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I ordered uh, 20 sets of head stalls and blankets and breast collars, and I need uh, uh, saddle bags and everything. And uh, uh, I literally said, go see John at the Clarksville, Tennessee Farmers Co-op. Because in, in the days before I deployed there out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, we had some, a few days, some false starts. We didn't deploy immediately. And so I had some time and was thinking about the horses aspect a little bit. And I happened to be in the farmer's co-op and I saw six of those Australian saddles on the rack in there. So the message to my military commanders are, hey, go see John at the Clarksville, Tennessee farmer's co-op and order 20 australian saddles and tack and i even said uh um, if you're not sure what i need call my dad at this number and just tell him mark needs and that was from afghan you're in afghanistan sending. oh yeah that was yeah that was from afghanistan sending (laughs) sending that mission so Uh, there's people scrambling to get us saddles uh and uh they didn't come didn't come and then uh, finally, after 24 days, I mean, I was raising this issue all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, our CIA teammates, they were requesting the saddles through their chain of command also. You know, they airdropped incredible logistical effort to get all kinds of supplies to us, like horse feed and uh, cold uh-huh. weather gear, you know, for a militia army of thousands. Uh, uh-huh. We need cold weather jackets and clothes and boots. I mean, some of these guys are running around in tennis shoes and sneakers, you know, with, with no socks and now winter's coming on. And so it was about helping take care of them as well. But they finally airdropped the saddles into us after we were no longer riding horses. So, <laughs> Yeah, that, and that's what, like I say, that's the stuff that, that isn't, isn't yeah. covered, you know? Yeah. We, we got through that, that cultural stigma, you know, after a few days, uh, it's injuring my guys because of their knees being too high. And finally, uh, part of that was their gears pretty, pretty primitive and worn out. And you would go to step up on that saddle and you'd break a stirrup right then and there or a cinch strap. So we're using field repair, field craft. We're using parachute bundles and parachute cord to make adjustable stirrups, but I had to get past that. Hey, this is somebody else's saddle to now, Hey, my guys are using this and it's enough of a safety issue that we're cutting the, the, the yeah. stirrup straps and we're, we're making our, our own adjustable stirrups with the, the parachute cargo straps that have been dropped in oh. and things like that. That is a rare, that's a rare occurrence for me that the stirrups are too short. 
usually. Yeah. <laughs> Even my girls, my daughters, I get, my one daughter, I'm embarrassed. I always got to shorten the stirrups uh, if I get in her saddle. So rare for me. So, yeah. um, you never, you didn't lose a guy, did you? Through this whole thing. You know, that's, that's a, a double-edged question. Yeah. You know, I didn't lose one of the Green Berets right. uh, with us, but uh, hundreds of our Afghan allies yeah. uh, were killed in the conduct of that operation, and hundreds more uh, were injured. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a number of the injured after we liberated the region, and they've now been brought out of the mountains to a hospital and clinic, and they recover. They would come to thank my teammates and I for, for saving their lives. Huh. Um, but it was very austere, savage, you know, battlefield uh, medicine. I'm talking field amputations and mass casualties and you're triaging them with the best we can supporting our special forces medics that are, that are doing some field surgery. But uh, so there's the Afghans. But then towards the end of our mission on November 25th, of 2001, one of our CIA teammates was killed, uh, Johnny Michael Spann. And uh, he became known as the first American killed over there uh, after 9-11. We're we're fortunate, you know, to survive it, Clint. Yeah. uh, Uh, You guys, and and again, I I have read a a little bit in your book, and I, it makes a good point in that when we picture special forces guys, we do, I mean, the reality is we picture Chris Hemsworth, you know, who played you in the movie, but you're just guys, your dad, your husbands, your dads, you are, my interpretation is you use this more than this. Um, Just a common, really bunch of guys. Could you tell your wife what you were doing at all? Uh, you know, they knew that we were going to, going to deploy, as I said, we, for our wives on the team, we had, uh, uh, three false starts, you know, where you've said your goodbyes and we've left and we've gone to the airfield and then something happens with the plane or it didn't come or whatever. And after you wait there for a period of time and the, the command finally says, okay, the plane's not coming today, you know, go back home. So now you're you know, a buddy's dropping you off back at the house or you're calling the wives to come back in and, and, and pick you up. So this is an emotional roller coaster up and down for them. You know, you couldn't, they, they, they're smart, smart women. Most of them have jobs outside the home. Uh, 10 out of the 12 of us on the team were married. Our average age was 32 for the guys. Uh, but out, out of those 10 couples, nine of the couples had two or more kids, you know, for me personally, I had two young sons, stepsons that were four and, uh, three years old. And, uh, my daughter was a high risk. Uh, I'm sorry. My wife was a high risk, uh, pregnancy with our first daughter. Uh, she was about six and a half months along and, uh, the wives, I, I can't say enough good things about the wives on that team and, and in special forces, you know, who do you rely on? They, they keep these teams very uh, compartmented. And so the, can you imagine what it was like for these wives? What is everybody talking about after nine 11, you know, in particular in that Fort Campbell community, you know, 
a number of the wives had my my own wife included as the as a special education school teacher you know she's got a job and her fellow uh employees are going hey isn't your husband in special forces hey what's going on what's going on what are they going to do she couldn't even these wives couldn't even tell their coworkers that we were already gone you know, or, or that, that where we had gone. Now, everybody suspected it was Afghanistan would be the ultimate uh, objective, but, you know, we didn't fully know uh, the details of how and when uh, we would get in there for that. Yeah. So uh, the wives had to rely on each other, you know, right before going into a critical battle, uh, the culminating battle, uh, the command sent me a message of use the satellite phone and call your wife from a cave in Afghanistan, huh. you know, I was able to call my wife and uh, she had gone in for eight month checkup. There were complications. And the doctor said, you're having the baby in two hours. Don't leave the hospital grounds, you know? So who does she call? She calls those other wives from that team and they rally around her in the delivery room. And huh. by the time that message got around the world to me, uh, they were, they were already home from the hospital. Um, so my uh, daughter was several months old before I got home uh, to hold her, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, these, these wives do, you know, the impact on the family uh, throughout these repeated deployments, uh, it wears on them as well. It impacts your kids. You miss a lot of birthdays and significant moments. Uh, and then when you are home, you, you try to make up for that as best you can. Um, in my description of, I, I marked in the few pages I read through very fast and skimmed, I, I marked something. There's little things that always stand out to me. And, uh, when I said you use this more than this, um, I'm, I'm going to read it. So I don't, uh, okay. Okay. Officers are trained in all areas of special operations, just as enlisted personnel, but though expected to be proficient overall, their job is to lead the subject matter experts rather than be the experts themselves. I just, for some reason, I love that statement. You don't have to know everything, but you got to lead the person that knows everything. So really it's a delegation, but you got to be, you got to know how to delegate all of that through all of this. Yeah. It's about trusting and empowering your, your team. You know, uh, we had cross trained significantly, you know, and by that I'm talking, you know, our medical specialists, you know, these guys are, they go through some of the toughest, longest training. Uh, you know, they work in the emergency rooms around the U S uh, and as part of their training. So they're, I, I joke about they are the best dentists, doctors, and veterinarians in the world practicing without a license. You know, our special forces medics get basic dentistry, basic optometry. Uh, they get introduction to veterinary medicine uh, because they would help doctor, you know, animals in the case of horses and things like that, or sheep and goats and cattle, you know on some of these missions around the world, because it's a way of helping build rapport with that local population uh, that you're working with, that really what is life-changing and helps 
empower those families in that region that you're working. So these special forces medics, I don't have to do the field surgery, but I damn sure better be able to do the tactical trauma care of rendering, you know, aid to myself or to a buddy or helping him triage casualties. And so that's, that has been, you know, a great leadership lesson for me is, is I use that guy as an example. And there's so many others of, of trusting and empowering your team, you know, do they have the resources they need? You know, they're like, Hey, Mark, we need a medical clinic. We need more antibiotics dropped in here. We, you know, can you help emphasize or, or elevate that issue to make sure they have the resources they need? And again, there's, there's dozens of other examples, but to me, it's about uh, trusting and empowering your subordinates to make them successful because it's going to make the overall team and mission successful. Uh, stated at the beginning of this, I love uh, the way, uh, and I don't know that people necessarily see it this way. There, there are two wars. There were two wars in Afghanistan. The one, this is about the first one. That's how yes. about your book said. This is about the first one. The second war in Afghanistan lasted 19 years or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that that has kind of been people more familiar. So this is about the first one. There had to be, you used a lot of people in Afghanistan. You became allies and enlisted the help of interpreters, guys that guided you to defeat the Taliban. They had to know in the back of their head, and excuse me if I, if this shit goes wrong, they're going to know if you didn't defeat the Taliban, if those Taliban are allowed back in, they know who these people are that helped you. Am I? Yeah. Yeah. They, they knew each other, you know, that's when we, when we got on the ground again, meeting with uh, general Dostum and commander Atta and commander Mohawk, the leaders of the Uzbeks, the Tajiks and the Hazaras, they had been openly fighting the Taliban and Al Qaeda because they had suffered horrifically under their the Taliban's uh, uh, militant Islam extremism and what they had imposed on the population. So that it became a fire hose of information meeting with them. They're explaining, hey, you know, here's the Taliban commander. Here's his name. Here's where he's from and the history, you know, uh, of not just their their military strengths and capabilities, but some of the stories were just heartbreaking of on, particularly on the Hazara people, because now you're talking about a, a Sunni and Shia uh, split. You know, they were almost to the level of ethnic cleansing on the Hazara people mm. in there, where they'd wipe out entire villages uh, and drive these people, either kill them or drive them from their homes. And, and you saw the carnage of that uh, on the battlefield. And, uh, but I also want to say it's in special forces, they, they talk about it's, you know, we can come in and say, Hey, we're the Americans and we're here and we're going to do it this way. And that's not typically going to work. And it's about, Hey, you tell me what's, what's the plan? What can be done? You understand this far better than I do. And how can we help you? What do you see that strategy can be? And general Dostum and Ada and these other commanders, they put forth the strategy. So then it became, well, how can we support their plan? 
you know, and there's, there's an, an adage, you know, in some of our required reading in special forces that's attributed to uh, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia during the, the first uh, world war. Uh, he's a British officer, fluent in Arabic, uh, that was, uh, became an advisor to, to the Arabs during that uprising as they fought against the, the Turks across the, the Middle East. And the adage is better that they do it on their own poorly than that I do it for them. And I know I'm butchering that, but that's, that, yeah. that's so it, because it has to be their plan, right? Because they understand the situation. Well, it, it's, um, I think we, we have a tendency and I see it in, in our government and probably in military where all we know is our Western culture. That, that's all we know. Uh, we, I think it's easy for us to sit here and go, well, if we just throw a bunch of troops in, obviously we can train their army and instill democracy and they'll just take it and run and it'll all be fine. I'm butchering that too, but yeah. But the cult, culturally, we, I do not believe we can grasp in, in, this, in our Western culture how completely different the ins and outs of their everyday culture are. Just like you said, that's why you, you go to them and say, the hell do we do here? Because yeah. it, we can't think in terms of Western culture to try and help them. It's got to be. Yeah, it is, it is an impossible nearly impossible uh, gap to portray the things that we take for granted every day here in the United States of America. Uh, how fortunate we are to be able to travel from city to city, right? Or across county lines without being stopped by illegal criminal gangs or checkpoints uh, or bombs alongside the road. Uh, or hell, even a road to drive on that's paved versus a dirt road to have a bridge across the stream. So all these things that we take for granted that allow commerce to happen and have an education and the opportunity to build, uh, you know, a successful business. You know, think of a country that is so utterly devastated from all the decades of war. Uh, the, it's not just you individually that may be depressed, but it's your entire family. The because of the economic circumstances, the poverty, it's a struggle to survive every day to feed your family in that environment and now feed an entire community and to have that family or a community to survive. It's it, you really have an entire nation uh, in Afghanistan suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress just because of the threat of being killed either accidentally uh, or uh, kids still stepping on a landmine that's been buried for years somewhere in an area uh, or just the random violence that these armed groups perpetrate on each other uh, to extort money or resources from from other groups and so it, it is a huge gap for most Americans to be able to think in terms of what you would do in that situation. It is a fight for survival uh, for those individuals, those families, those groups. And so uh, they have incredible strong uh, family bonds. Uh, that is, is very impressive to see. 
uh, they, they have nothing. And when you're a guest invited into their home, they will, they will cook up the best meal that they can because of their family's honor. And, and, you know, if I, if I take, you know, a large portion, there's some family member is going, going hungry, but yet they, you know, you have to balance, you know, some of that with them, uh, but sharing meals with them, we were welcomed into their homes as guests. Uh, I've gone back a number of times and been welcomed back into their home, like, like a, a long lost son that's, that's returning. And it's just been incredibly powerful and humbling uh, to visit those folks and to see them grow over the years, you know, uh, interpreters or other commanders, they went on, uh, they became businessmen in that country or uh, got their degrees. And, you know, some of them became doctors, mm. you know, and just see the thirst for education and opportunity uh, um, and to see what, what they're going to do in the future. It's very inspirational. Yeah. I, I've been working on getting you on here for a while. Over a year ago, I'd messaged you and said, hey, and, and I'm, by the way, in this, how, whatever you want to share with me, I'm throwing any sort of politics out the window on this. That's what I do here. But yeah. I contacted you right when all of a sudden we just left Afghanistan. And I went, in my head, I'm thinking, this isn't good. Hey, I'll bet Mark has an opinion on this. And I contacted you and I got a, a single line message back said, I'd love to talk Flint, but I can't right now. You, you have been yeah. busy. That was a, that was a bad thing as far as the, the people. When I, when I said these people had to know if this goes wrong, they know who I am. That was the big worry when we just all of a sudden left Afghanistan. Taliban just moved right back in. That had to affect you and, and the people you knew and what all went on. Yeah, that was, that was tough. Uh, as I said, it, it, you know, I'd gone back a number of times in uniform as a defense contractor. I'd gone back uh, as a private American citizen doing uh, humanitarian aid efforts on the ground to help with clean drinking water and schools and, and things. Uh, it wasn't just me. It was very tough uh, a year ago. Um, it was tough for our broader special forces community. It was tough for intelligence officers that had and the state department officials and aid workers and just, just people that had spent a large part of our adult lives trying to help rebuild the place that's been so utterly devastated. And you can get into a whole conversation about the futility of that and the strategy and the politics. And, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that I knew and trusted people that worked with us right after nine 11, uh, that were trying to be part of the solution to help pull their country out of that. Uh, it, it was, it was tough. It was tough. And so there were thousands of veterans, uh, from all the services, not just the special forces. There were intelligence officers, state department workers, aid, aid groups that all came together uh, in an ad hoc manner to try to do what we firmly believed was morally right as an obligation to help friends, help people that we had recruited uh, 
because of their skills or qualifications to try to help be leaders within that country. And we knew what would happen to them. You know, there was a valiant fight to try to keep the Taliban from coming back. And it comes back to leadership, leadership at all levels. And some of that, again, may be the cultural challenges that they have there. But, you know, there were some key leaders that were trying to rally the troops, rally their police and security forces and, and uh, uh, to try to make a stand in, in different communities. And uh, um, horrible stories there of, of some betrayal or treachery and, and they're forced to flee from that area. Uh, a number of them went down fighting. Uh, people I knew from 20 years ago, I was getting calls, you know, going, Hey, can you help? Can you help? And I uh, admittedly kind of turned some anger into action and got involved again and, uh, worked to try to help, uh, uh, bring aid or awareness, uh, to people that had stood beside our country right after nine 11 in our darkest hour. Um, you know, we were successful in getting, uh, some of the folks out through an incredible effort, uh, there at, uh, at Kabul, you know, and the whole world saw that, um, it was incredibly stressful on me personally, again, and my family. Um, and fortunately we were, we were successful in, in getting, uh, a number of them out to other countries or uh, out to the United States. Um, man, we left a lot of stuff over there too, didn't we? That's, I know that's a real shallow thing yeah. that as you're talking. We, we left a lot of everything yeah. there. Well, are we, is this a, are, is, are we having a breakfast bourbon, a lunch <laughs> bourbon or a dinner bourbon here? So we're, we're getting into some, uh, yeah. um, some topics, but yeah, uh, no, I, you know, um, it, we, we are, we, we did, uh, you know, how, how can I politely say this? Um, you don't have horrible, mis- you don't have horrible, horrible, right. horrible mistakes yeah. were made. Yeah. And, uh, to pull the rug out from under an ally completely, mm-hmm. our country needs allies. We can't go it alone. We have to have allies just like the special forces. When we approach our mission, it's, by, with, or through a local partner that has a deeper understanding of the situation or problem set. But our country with these, these complex challenges around the world, we got to have allies. And to see how uh, a key ally was, was abandoned um, and that equipment lost, uh, it, was, it was heartbreaking. Uh, as I said, a number of veterans and groups getting together uh, to help do what was morally right, to try to help some people that had, that stood beside us in our darkest hour. That was what I felt compelled to do and get involved in. I'm still involved in that, helping uh, support the resettlement of, of these Afghans that have are trying to legally immigrate here. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about that legal process if you want, or folks uh, can read about it. It's just, yeah. it, it, it takes an average of over 900 days to get an application approved through our bureaucratic processes. Uh, and it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but, uh, um, 
they, I know if there's Afghans, you know, in different, you know, in different communities around the U.S., I encourage people to, you know, talk with them if they want to get involved to help help these veteran groups that are helping these Afghan allies. Uh, um, there's a number of number of groups out there. Um, you know, I'll, I will tell you that it was also tough. Of I worked with uh, Project Dynamo. They helped to rescue uh, several hundred American citizens or legal permanent residents that were abandoned. And they have gone back on the ground uh, to work with, with uh, folks to, to bring out American citizens that were left behind as well. So um, it's a tough topic. Yeah, it it's is. And I, and I know it is for you. I, I knew that uh, through a mutual friend and, you know, and I knew that and I appreciate yeah. you sharing. I just think it's oh. something people should know. And something else people should know is this and everything we do here on According to Flint is brought to you by Pendleton Whiskey. Our good friends at Pendleton Whiskey. I have to lead with that, Mark, because that's, that's, that's the deal, you know? But I got to tell you, you gave me a bottle of horse soldier bourbon when you had come to my show, the NFR, and I said, man, I'm displaying this. And you said, bullshit, you're drinking it, and I'll send you more. <laughs> But you and Bob had signed that bottle, and it's been on my shelf since that day. And this this oh. week, you sent me another bottle of Horse Soldier Bourbon, and I want to show you something. Again, this will violate every spot. No. Yeah. I want to show you something. Some of it is gone, Mark. Some of it is gone. <laughs> Well, that's that's what we want folks yeah. to, to enjoy is celebrate <laughs> the special moments, the challenges in their life. Uh, um, and hope, we hope they'll choose and celebrate because of that story behind Horse Soldier Bourbon and uh, that bottle. These bottles mm -hmm. are forged by World Trade Center steel. There you go. You know, we were gifted a chunk of steel. It was melted down and it's the mold that shapes every one of these bottles. The bottle I'm holding here and the bottle you got there and that thousands of fans across the U.S. have purchased. Uh, you know, I joke with them. I need you to knock the top off of it and share it out with with friends. Celebrate that special moment at the the college rodeo finals, you know, mm -hmm. with uh, uh, with your family and friends, you know, whatever that may be. But uh, the brand has done tremendous. We're in 18 states now. I will also share with you, uh, since January, we've been in Montana. And uh, Montana has blown up uh, for us with uh, bourbon sales. We but, drink uh, a lot. We drink a lot in Montana, Mark. You're welcome. I, it's just it's how we Thank know. you. <laughs> that's, uh, that, uh, I've had fun. I got up there uh, uh, last October. Um was up there uh, trying my hand at elk hunting. It was too early and it was too warm. So the elk hadn't come down yet. So we were enjoying just the local, you know, cafes for breakfast and just meeting with local folks. I got to do uh, uh, a Mon Montana poker ride, which was fun. You know, a local ranch and family invited me to come out and uh, let me borrow a good horse. Uh, <laughs> stirrup you adjusted the stirrups yeah yeah, yeah. The stirrups on it. but uh yeah they let me borrow their daughter's horse that couldn't make the ride that day and just had a great time meeting that family and and others you know i thought it was going to be just 
a handful of families. I think they had over 200 people turn out for that poker ride, you know? So I bought a few bottles of horse soldier bourbon and brought those along on the, on the trail ride. And it was just fun meeting folks from Montana and riding up across uh, the beautiful ridges and just having a great time. But uh, we're, we're in 18 States now for distribution. That's Florida, Virginia, New York, North Carolina. Uh, we are in, Pennsylvania as well as relatively new. Uh, but then we're in Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, Kansas, where I'm at. And then we're in Texas, Arizona, California, and Nevada. Uh, and our two newest states are Washington and Colorado. And so we're having a, a great ride traveling around, uh, sharing the story, uh, meeting with folks, uh, doing a uh, a whiskey and war story kind of event with uh, ticketed groups, you know, it, and having fun sharing about the military background, but then this award-winning bourbon. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tout on it for a little bit. Our, all three of our bourbon offerings, each one double gold in the San Francisco World Spirits Festival uh, this last spring. And uh, that's considered one of the, the prestigious uh, competitions. It is unanimous. They don't know your brand name. They don't know your beautiful packaging. It is a hundred percent off the juice in that bottle. And all three of our core horse soldier bourbon products, each one double gold in their own category. Hmm. Uh, our premium straight, the one you've got there, it yep. won double gold, uh, two years ago in San Francisco. <clears throat> and so our marketing folks aren't quite sure how to get their head around that yet, <laughs> that we won triple double golds. Uh, we're not sure there's another small craft bourbon brand or even the big boys that have swept the competition with all of their entries winning double gold. So we're really proud of this bourbon and the brand uh, it's taken off. Uh, uh, we invite folks to come see us down in the St. Petersburg, Florida, Tampa, Florida area. We got a fine dining restaurant and saloon called the Urban Stillhouse that showcases our brand there. Um, please call ahead for reservations. We're backed up one to two weeks. Uh, we, we got some big dreams. Over the next three years, we're going to build out our own distillery in Somerset, Kentucky. It's about an hour and a half south of Lexington in the southeastern part of the state there. Uh, we're going to have the horse soldier bourbon farms there. And uh, we're building that out over the next three years. And uh, that community has just been incredible supporting us, uh, anxiously waiting on, on that endeavor. Well, my, my tasting of it was pretty formal and official. Uh, I have a maintenance man that loves bourbon. And yeah. after work yesterday, I waved him across the parking lot and I showed him, he said, man, I've, I've seen the bottle displayed in your place. I said, should we try it? So we sat out on my patio on the big, nice. the big ice cube. Yeah. And we said, we poured a little bit as I said, I can't go in. I can't go in blind with Mark. I, I got to be able to tell him if it, ta if I hate it or love it, which I, I had a pretty good idea. So we had one and we looked at each other and he said, yeah, we might need another pour to make sure it's okay. <laughs> so repeated, repeated testing for it, quality well, assurance. You, know? you have to do it the right way. But I will yeah. say, just for sponsorship purposes, 
we were sitting in Pendleton whiskey lawn chairs to do this, to, to see best of both. So I, I, I will say between you and me, Mark, really good. Well, I appreciate really that. Good. I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, yeah. You know, we're going to surprise you. You know, we want, we want fans. We want this to be their go-to, like I said, to celebrate the special occasions, the special moments, yeah. uh, or just the, the daily, you know, routine drinkers, if you will. <laughs> but uh would that be um, me am i a daily okay yeah yeah, yeah. So. so we joke we've got uh so you've got our our premium straight that's a uh called a high rye in that so it's corn and then rye and a little bit of barley uh 87 proof and then uh our other two bourbons are a uh weeded bourbon so it's corn and then wheat as that flavoring grain with some barley we've got our signature small batch that's uh a handful about eight to ten barrels blended together and we always uh, cut it down to 95 proof to uh honor our special forces team in a subtle way that was known as the 95 team and then our other product with the silver label on it is the big brother big sister it is the barrel strength uh it's just filtered for particulates uh straight out of the cask that's what our distiller was going for it's as mother nature intended so it is you're going to see that vary. It's going to be, you know, in the high, uh, 115 or above, uh, up to 125. I think I've seen the highest mm. 126. Uh, you know, be it's going careful. to be at that 120 or above area <laughs> be, in there. Be careful. It'll sneak up <laughs> on you a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It'll, it'll, it's, it's just a great sipper on a, on a, on a big rock and just let it chill and just easy, smooth sipper. And, and, uh, we're so proud of that bourbon during COVID. It came out as one of the, it was whiskey advocate ranked it as 50th of the top bourbons to drink in the world. And, uh, we joke because of that high proof. Uh, you know, I grew up on a farm and ranch community. I choked down a little bit of livestock dust, maybe ate some dirt as a kid. Occasionally, uh, the military shot me full of vaccines and I drink that barrel strength horse soldier bourbon occasionally was just a little sip for medicinal purposes. And, <laughs> and, uh, thankfully I did not get the COVID, you know, but our, our lawyers say we can't say that. So it's science. I follow it's the science. science, Mark. That's all I can do. So yeah, hey, just follow it. But, uh, um, before, I appreciate the opportunity, you know, our bourbon pairs well with a book called it, swords, of, swords lightning. of lightning. And it's, yeah, I'm looking forward to continue the few pages I've been able to knock out since I got home. But I do want to say, before I let you go, and I told you this when you were on my show, and I don't know if you remember, I have a very, you know, when I saw, first saw the movie 12 Strong, then met you, there was a deep connection for me because now my former father-in-law, but still uh, consider him one of the greatest men I've ever met and close with him, was a Green Beret Special Forces guy himself, eventually ended up in the Border Patrol and patrolled the southern border on horseback by himself. Uh-huh. And up at our small place we had in Montana, we had water crossings, we had an arena, and hosted a, a Special Forces horse training two-day um, camp, so to speak, they, they yeah. came in to show to Montana. We hosted about 25 of them at our place. He taught them how to pack a horse, how to ride a horse across water. It was just a, a great thing to witness. And when I had the opportunity to meet you, I just felt a connection there. 
an admiration for that. And I've witnessed him training. And it was based on the fact, he. I remember him telling me, after 9-11, our soldiers were forced to um, use horses with the Afghanis, and I owe it to them to train some of them. So I just, you know, I know, I hope he listens to this. I'm sending him a book. Um, so what you did, it, it really, you know, kick-started some of that, and I, I just appreciate it. So, No, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, I know there's been a number of courses uh, and different groups host training for our, our guys uh, to help prep them to go over. Um, they, they, they incorporated horses in, into our special forces course now. So that uh, down in North Carolina, so they get introduced to pack animals. It, it is still a thing despite the 21st century, you know, when we go work in some of these far flung regions of the world, you know, we send 12 guys so that we don't have to send 200 or 2000. And that may be the mode of transportation uh, occasionally that you may use. Yeah. One more thing. I'm going to let you go. I, I turn in two pages. Thank you for the personalization of my book. The next page, the book starts with, it's Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the vo- voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And that, Completely, that's you guys. And uh, we have a lot of people on here that people consider heroes, but you're a, you're a great hero, Mark, and we appreciate it. Well, had an incredible team. Uh, just these guys in the Special Forces community, not just that team, the others I served with, they're just great Americans. You know, we're going to surprise you, um, you know, with, with what the capabilities and training are. And uh, just that's been an honor and a highlight of my life was to work with uh, – the team, the five, nine, five team, and some of the other, the other teams throughout my career. But, uh, this book swords of lightning, people can get it, uh, wherever books are sold. Uh, if they want to check out our website, swordsoflightning.com, uh, they can order or purchase, uh, an autographed copy there. And, uh, uh, if they're wanting to do a bulk order, a bulk order or something, uh, they can reach out to us and we'll connect them, uh, with the publisher. But, yeah. uh, we're, we're having a great run with the book. Uh, it blew up uh, to number one new release on Amazon. And uh, we just have, we sold through most of those copies and we just got uh, our publisher reprinted and uh, they're getting stocked up again. So we, we've just begun to help promote the book in a bourbon. Uh, and that's been fun uh, doing that as well. Uh, and sharing the story about the incredible experience right after 9-11, just reminding people how united our country was uh, back then and that, that we, have, we have more in common than what separates us. Yeah. I still think you're better looking than Chris Hemsworth. I, I mean... My, my <laughs> wife assures me of that, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she does. I'm sure she does. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you, man. Hey, thank you for having me on, Flint. You've been great.